Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello and welcome to Season 7 of The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, journalist and author, Sam Baker. I'm really thrilled to be able to launch this season with one of my long-time fantasy guests. Nicola Sturgeon, First Minister of Scotland since 2015, has been dubbed one of the most powerful women in British politics, if not in Britain, and she shows absolutely no sign of stopping. I often think the world would be a much better place if it was ruled by women. Maybe the world would be a much, much better place if it was ruled by menopausal women. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, Omicron stopped us meeting in person, which is a shame because I've heard the loser Butte House are well worth a snoop. But Nicola joined me remotely to talk about what it means to be a 50-something woman in the corridors of power, from having to work twice as hard to be taken half as seriously, and why a little bit of self-doubt is good for you. I can think of a few male politicians who might benefit. She was also incredibly open about being in the foothills of menopause, preparing to take HRT, and what happens if you have a hot flush in Parliament. It's always been my aim to ask powerful women to come on the shift to speak up about menopause, so I couldn't be more grateful to Nicola for taking time out to have this conversation. Plus, she shared a whole host of brilliant book recommendations at the end. Have you always been a big reader? Yeah, since I was about, well, since before um, I could properly read, actually. I loved, I just loved books. And then as soon as I could read that, I read books and always hated being read to as a child, which is really strange. I always wanted the, the book myself so that I could read for myself. Just the miniature control freak right from the word go, basically. <laughs> yeah, well, some people, Emily, don't laugh like that. <laughs> yeah, I've grown from a miniature control freak into a fully blown control freak. Uh, what was the first book then that made an impact on Little Nicola in Ayrshire? Um, it was probably, in fact, I think it was uh, Enid Blyton books mm. before the, the Famous Five. I was a Famous Five kind of devotee when I got a little bit older but I think um the magic faraway tree um, oh yeah I love that. what I remember and I think that is probably whether it was actually the first book I read I don't know but it's the first one I think I remember really clearly loving this book and being completely captivated by the story and and the characters and just the sense of of magic and escapism in it and I've never really lost that about reading novels it's literally transporting, isn't it, that book? It just yeah. takes you away into yeah. a whole other world. You aren't the first person to mention that book, and I think it's because it's not an obligation, whereas at that age there's so many the books you have to read for school. And Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about Little Nick before we talk about Big Little Nick. Nick. <laughs> I'm my, talk- my dad still calls me that, incidentally. What, Little Nick? Yeah. Oh. Is that because you're high or because you're not the youngest? He's always, he's, my dad's always called me Nick. Most of my family call me Nick, but my dad always calls me Nick. And that was kind of just what he always used to call me. Uh, wee Nick or Little Nick. So mm-hmm. he still does. You're the eldest of three, aren't you? Two. 
Two. Yeah. There is a Wikipedia thing that says that I've got two sisters and we tease my dad about it because, like, me and my sister and my mum only know of the two of us. <laughs> teasing him, is there somebody else that we don't know about? But he is adamant there's not. That shows you the shame of journalists and Wikipedia because not only did I see that on Wikipedia, I also saw it in a couple of articles. Yeah, no, it has appeared. Yeah, it's it's quite funny. It's become a bit of a family joke. Oh, God. I thought your dad needs to, like, fess up now. He has been grilled um, many times, <laughs> but he is adamant it's not true. <laughs> How was it being the eldest? Did you have that kind of classic thing? So my mum will be listening when this comes out and I know she'll go what do you mean that the eldest has a harder time that's not true but did you have a bit more pressure to be you know yeah I think my sister my my wee sister Gillian uh, who's five years younger than me I think if she was here she would absolutely reel against that and say that she had the harder time because I bossed her around but I do think when you're the oldest there is a greater sense of responsibility you have to be the serious one you're the one that's often you know told you've got to look after your younger sister and be the grown-up almost even when you're a child. Um, So I definitely think there is a greater degree of responsibility and seriousness for an older child. Yeah, definitely. Like me, you come from a very kind of ordinary family, Mm. don't you? I mean, your dad was an electrician and your mum, dental nurse. Mm. What were the kind of influences when you were growing up that gave you the kind of impetus and the belief in yourself that you must have had from quite a young age? It's quite a hard thing to answer because not in a sort of overconfident way, because I I don't think I've ever really been overconfident. I was a really shy child. But looking back, I, I almost always had, I think, that sort of sense of inner confidence that didn't always manifest itself, you know, externally, but that inner belief that I could do things that I'd set my mind to and I shouldn't allow myself to be told that certain things were off limits for me or I shouldn't follow my dreams. And I think I can only say that that must have come from my mum and dad because, you know, there was nobody else around when I was really, really young that would have instilled that in me. And and so they definitely did. In fact, I can't remember a time where it wasn't almost taken for granted that my aspiration was to go to university and nobody else in my family had ever got to university. You know, if I think back to that, it wasn't a sense of, oh, you know, this is something I'd really love to do and, you know, it would be great if I could do it. It was, no, no, that's what I'm going to do. And I never doubted it. If I worked hard and got the grades, that's what I would do. And so my mum and dad, coming from back where they wouldn't have known anybody in their family to do that. They obviously instilled that in me as something that I had every right to believe that I could do and aspire to. And I was I was always surrounded by books when I was young. So again, I think that instilled the love of reading, which I think in some ways also it helps to instill that sense of inner confidence because you're learning a lot about worlds outside your own immediate experience. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, definitely my mum and dad. There's, there's no doubt about it. Was it a bookie house? It, it was a house that always had books in it. I'm not sure I would describe it as a bookie house. It was <laughs> whatever that mom, is. Yeah. My mum was a great, still is a great reader of novels. My dad too, to a lesser extent. It wasn't a house full of really serious, you know, lots of non-fiction and, and very sort of heavy reading. It was the house where I developed a love of fiction and a love of novels. And, and so there was always books around. I always uh, was encouraged to go to the library. Um, I had, you know, got my first library card probably when I was about five. Mm-hmm. You know, my mum 
And dad would always encourage me to read, you know, I would ask for books for Christmas and birthdays and things like that. So it was just something that was there. I would I would just have taken it for granted. And my earliest childhood memories on sort of rare days of school, if I wasn't well or something or school holidays, I would literally take myself behind the sofa and <laughs> and read a book. You know, my mum my tells a story, which I'm not sure if I actually remember it or I just think I remember it because yeah. she told me this story and told other people this story so often. But on my fifth birthday party, when I had friends in and we're all playing party games, I took myself under the kitchen table with a book and refused to come out. And actually, there are many days here where now that that's what I would like most to do. Just I was just going to say table. that. You probably fancy doing that today, don't you? Yeah, totally, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> were you a swatty kid or a, a rebel? No, I was a, I was a very swatty kid. Yeah, I maybe had sort of moments of rebellion when I was at secondary school, but they didn't last very long and they were never, with hindsight, all that rebellious. Maybe again comes from being the older child, that sense of being responsible. It's maybe in some ways the flip side of what I've just talked about there, that sense of inner belief that was instilled in me. So there's never any doubt that I should aspire to go to university and that's what I was going to do. I suppose put a bit of pressure on me that I had to live up to that and therefore I had to study really hard and make sure that it wasn't my fault that that didn't come to pass. So I think the flip side of everything that I've spoken about there in a thoroughly good way, because I think it is thoroughly good, also uh, developed in me a bit of a, a serious approach to life that definitely meant I was a swatty child rather than a rebellious child. A lot of the women that I talk to say that they kind of feel like they had that belief when they were quite little. And as they mm. grew into being a girl, if you like, yeah. they kind of lost that and they're starting to get it back now. You'll know that because you've heard some episodes. But why do you think that didn't happen? I'm not sure it, it didn't happen at periods. I mean, I, I don't think I ever lost it, but I think I went through periods in, in life and, and still go through periods in life, I guess, even now where that sense is challenged and I doubt it more. I kind of look back and I know, and I think a lot of women feel this, and I've spoken to so many friends and other women who would articulate exactly the same thing here, is that you really have to work so much harder to prove yourself so much more to be taken, particularly in the kind of profession I'm in, to be taken probably half as seriously as your your average man. You know, it can be tiresome and wearisome that we still have to do that. But I've come to a, a conclusion in my life that it's actually quite a good thing because you end up being better because you work a lot yeah. harder and you have to really you know, go so much further to, to prove yourself and be taken seriously. And it's that classic thing as well, isn't it, of being constantly underestimated so I've always had this inner confidence but it's not always manifested itself I was a really shy child I'm still I would describe myself people laugh at me when I say this but I'm an innately shy person and so I suppose I've had to overcome that along the way so I've always had this inner confidence but you know, coupled with a sort of inner doubt. So these two things have always inside me been a bit in conflict and a constant battle between the two. And that is probably true even now. And I think for many women, uh, no matter how successful or senior they've come to be, that sense of not entirely ever feeling that you've earned it or that it is justified, I suppose it's what is often called the imposter syndrome there mm. in many of us. Do you suffer from that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's something I've said before. And partly I think it's gender, although I, I know that some men suffer from that as well. Partly it's the sort of working class background. Now through my career, there's a sense of, you know, almost always being sort of just waiting to be found out and that you're not really good enough to be doing this and that there are better people that could do it. And there are times when I still 
feel that. But it's taken me a long time to get to this. But I actually think as long as it doesn't completely cripple you and stop you doing the things that you want to do, a little bit of that I think is quite healthy and actually is good for you. I'm going to be sort of political here. I, I promise I won't yeah. get too political. I sometimes no, you're welcome. like Boris Johnson and I think, my God, a little bit of imposter syndrome would do you the world of good. <laughs> is actually it would make you sort of take a step back and think, maybe I've just got to work a bit harder. Maybe I've just got to, you know, sort of prove myself a bit more instead of this sort of, you know, gliding through life as if the world owes you a living. We can only dream, can't we? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we could probably talk about that for about the next hour, probably. I've kind of always felt that I don't really trust people who don't have any imposter syndrome. And also not having any sort of sense of self-doubt. Self-doubt is what I think makes all of us dig deep in ourselves, you know, question ourselves, you know, stretch and strive to be the best you can be. As long as you're trying to overcome that, you're never sort of resting on your laurels or being complacent or arrogant about things. You're always pushing yourself that little bit further and faster. And I think that's a good thing. I've got to be careful that doesn't sound like an argument for women always of having to struggle more to be taken seriously because it Mm. shouldn't be like that. But I do think it's why when you see women, I'm not talking about myself here, obviously, I'm talking about other women in senior positions, by and large, you know, they're better than their equivalent man. And more often than not, they've had to really push themselves much harder to get to where they are. So many of the women I've spoken to have said a variation on that, that as women, they've had to work twice or three times as hard. And as women of colour, they've had to work, you know, four Absolutely. times as hard. And mm. yeah, it's not really, I mean, it's changing a bit, of course it is, but it's still pretty prevalent, yeah. I would say. I think it's much more prevalent than we want to believe it is still today. I think it is still true that women have to work so much harder to be taken half as seriously and uh, and to get half as, as far as men do. You know, I remember reading something not that long ago that talks about women almost self-select out of mm. certain things. So, you know, a man will see a job advert and if he can sort of convince himself that he fulfills one of the criteria he'll put himself forward whereas a woman will see the same job advert and unless she can convince herself that she fulfills absolutely every single criteria then she won't put herself forward so you get average men rising to the top because really really good women sort of take themselves out before there's even been a consideration so is that getting better it probably is is it getting better fast enough then absolutely not no I mean I think there's the self-selecting thing isn't there and then certainly I remember growing up through my career watch women drop away as they have a Mm. child or more drop away at two children and then the kind of current thing with people talking about dropping out of their careers at menopause or in their Mm. late 40s how has I mean you're 51 now Mm. what stage are you at have you hit menopause yet I, I, I would describe myself I think in still in the foothills um, yeah. It's definitely kind of there or thereabouts. As I say that, one of the things that always strikes me is even today when we talk about it much more and there is more information available uh, than I guess there has ever been before. I say that and there's still a massive amount of guesswork about it because mm. we're, we're still all sort of kind of feeling our way through it and not actually sure, you know, what it should be like so yeah foothills I would say but you know I've already had a conversation with my doctor about HRT I've not started taking it yet and I did that deliberately because we're of the generation I guess where I grew up thinking uh, that HRT was some terrible terrible thing and it was a badge of honour that you would have to push yourself through without it 
and obviously down to the study that turned out to be rubbish and the fear that many women develop because of that. And you just think how many women just suffer in silence and suffer unnecessarily because of that. So, yeah, it's it's a strange thing. You know, we talk about it much more. Um, and obviously it's one of the, the things you talk about on this podcast a lot. And I'm very conscious of being a woman with a profile and a platform, mm. a fair degree of influence. So I feel a responsibility given that I'm at that age to talk about it myself and yet even talking about it like this to you right now I am so far out of my comfort zone um in terms of of just the the sort of intensely personal nature of it and that tells me no matter how far we've come in this discussion we still have a long way to go that somebody like me still feels kind of uncomfortable with it yeah it's still not nothing is it and I think there's a sense that is this something that's going to be used you know that you talk about it and suddenly it becomes a thing yeah I mean so if I start openly talking about you know symptoms of menopause then there's no no shortage of people out there whether they're <laughs> opposition politicians or journalists uh, who would no doubt they probably wouldn't do it directly because even they would think that wasn't you know sort of politically correct thing to do but would be used against me in some way when in actual fact I think for most women it's a bit like what we were talking about earlier having to work harder to be taken serious I guess when most women in positions like mine although there's not been that many I guess in positions like mine that will have gone through the menopause, the response will be to work much harder to overcome it, to make sure that you're trying not to let it sort of interfere in in any way. I often think the world would be a much better place if it was ruled by women. Maybe the world would be a much, much better place if it was ruled by menopausal women. Yeah, (laughs) well, I think so, obviously. (laughs) I mean, like you said, you don't feel 100% comfortable talking Mm. about it now. Can you envisage a situation where... I mean, if you're lucky, you won't. You might have a hot flush in a a meeting and you'll go, I'm sorry, I've just got to open the windows. Or do you think you'll just sweat it out? Um, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I would like to think I would be open about it. If you look around the world, you know, there's not, been that many women leaders and there's oh, hardly any yeah. that many I mean I guess Angela Merkel must have gone through it when she was in office when you think about the age and the yeah. period of time she's been in office you know Hillary Clinton people like, but there's not that many so if you've got that platform then I would like to think I would use that positively but I'm also a human being and so I don't, I don't know. I've not had that extreme. I think I'm at the stage where definitely, you know, the sort of feeling a bit uh, hotter, you know, overnight, <laughs> not being able to sleep and all that kind of thing. So I've got windows open, at, you know, the depth of winter. Um, my poor husband is shivering through that experience already. <laughs> Isn't that like a bit of an about turn? Because I don't know about you, but most of my marriage, I was the frozen one. And yeah, we're the other way around. Yeah. It's completely sort of sub-zero temperatures of December and the bedroom windows are wide open all night. I don't know if I you know experience those kind of extreme symptoms in public in meetings I mean I've 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 thought to myself it's never happened yet but you know I've kind of thought to myself what if that happens when I'm on my feet in parliament in the middle of first minister's questions you know what what would I do and I mean that could happen could happen anytime what would you do I I don't know (laughs) I'm not sure I will know the answer to that question until it happens so watch this space (laughs) maybe the sort of uh, male opposition leaders should be thinking about it as well (laughs) what I will do (laughs) yeah yeah I mean anything could happen
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Have you felt over the years, because you were kind of coming up through politics in the 90s and noughties, and for many women, kind of coming up, working through those years was very different to, mm. to now, wasn't it, in terms of the climate? You know, I remember when I was working on the pool and Me Too happened and the team, they were very young women and they could not get their head around the fact that I could not get my head around the fact that it actually happened because of going up through, I was working in the late 80s and the early 90s and that kind of how you had to manage the situation yourself. Yeah. Have you over the years felt the pressure, I mean, you must have been surrounded by middle-aged white men your entire career mm-hmm. to kind of... I don't know, find ways to fit in, to kind of play their game a bit? Absolutely. It was quite well into my political career. You know, I was probably in my 40s, I guess, before I really sort of became conscious of this because at the time it was just subconscious. It was what you did. So in my earlier days in politics, I would find myself behaving like the men around me. So you would dress a little bit sort of more, I guess, a more masculine sense you would behave in the same sort of adversarial you know, sense that the main male politicians around you were. And I definitely did that. And what you then come to a point uh, of realisation about is that you end up there, you don't get any credit for doing that. You end up in a, a double whammy because you're not ever taken quite as seriously as the men, but you're equally accused of being you know, unfeminine and mm. not being enough of a, a woman. So yet you just end up in this double whammy position and it took me a long time to realize that and then a long time to you know work out that you really had to find a way not just in politics but in life of being yourself and not adapting to the people around you you often I get asked by younger women in politics or public life more generally what one piece of advice would you give and that is always it you've got to be yourself you know whatever that is be comfortable in yourself don't try to emulate the behaviors of people around you but then in in the me too context that people in my generation we took a lot of behavior for granted Mm. you know comment at the way in which men would speak to you you know refer to you you know looks and men would feel able just to kind of put their hand on your back or whatever and I think we all just took that as something we had to put up with and and I hope one of the things that is changing is that women feel more confident in not having to put up with that but I'm also conscious of the fact for young women today in politics it is harder than it was when I was younger you know social media didn't exist so there are actually pressures today that young women face that I didn't so it it definitely swings and roundabouts but it all ends up still unfortunately in a position where life for women certainly in politics and the same will be true in many other walks of life is a damn sight harder. Mm. The online trolling is you know particularly bad for female MPs and you know as an example I've only had to kind of comment on a post of yours to be trolled for weeks. Sorry. When, <laughs> not at all serves me right yeah. but do you pay any attention to it? How do you handle it? So on you know Twitter, for example, I'm probably in quite a lucky position, which sounds a bit of a bizarre thing to say because I get a hell of a lot of abuse um, and some you know pretty vicious and horrible abuse. But 
you know, I've got a lot of followers on Twitter. So my, my kind of Twitter timeline, I couldn't possibly, you know, keep abreast of it, even if I tried, which I don't. It comes, you know, past me at such a rate of not. So I'm, I'm probably more able to ignore it and, and not see it than, than many other people are. And I try not to look at it uh, either because it would drive you bonkers if you sort of dipped too often into the toxic sewer that is uh, the depths of social media. Uh, but I do know for others, you know, for younger women, for people that are uh, perhaps not um, in the same position I am, that's a really, really difficult thing. And I I really worry that it, it is going to make politics and public life almost intolerable for people in in the future. And I think that is a worry and I I don't have all the answers to it, but we really have to think very seriously. Social media companies do. I think politics generally has to think about that. The nature of democracy means if you want to be in politics, you have to develop a bit of a thick skin. You have to be open to criticism. That's the the very stuff of democratic debate. But the, the nature of social media means that it is in your face so much and it's the the really toxic stuff alongside with total parity as far as you can see to the legitimate democratic criticism that means it is really difficult for people from a mental health perspective but also just the resilience that it takes to deal with that is is really quite something and there is still a need I know changes have been made you know in terms of the the filters and everything on twitter but the amount of abuse I don't as I've just said I don't look at it I don't you know see much of it but Every now and again, I do see some of it. So the the kind of nature and scale of abuse that gets through all of that to me tells me that there's a lot more that needs to be done there in terms of the technology providers to try to tackle that. You know, we need to have a, a democratic space, you know, public discourse that is vigorous and robust and that subjects people like me to criticism and scrutiny. But we've allowed that to become so polluted with just straightforward abuse you know, threats of violence, you know, Unless, yeah. sexual, you know, assault and rape and all of the rest of it, that it is making the democratic space a much, much tougher place for people to be. And that's bad for democracy, really bad for democracy. Why do you think, I mean, this is massive generalisation, but I'm going to say men. Why do you think men are so frightened of you? I've seen you described variously as dangerous, difficult, bossy, pushy. I mean, I could go on, but you probably don't really need me to go on with all those adjectives. Why do you think you scare them? I don't know. I, I don't know if... if you look I, slightly pleased, can I say? <laughs> there are, well, there are some of them I'm quite happy to... Uh, no, I, I don't know. It's threaten them maybe more than scare them. Yeah. So part of it is not about me. Part of it is just the way some men still deal with women that they find threatening or that they think, you know, have got above themselves or above yeah. their station in life a little bit. When I was much younger in politics, the nickname I was given, and actually I was given it by a man who I think the world of, and it was meant as a compliment because I stood up and fought my corner, was Nippy Sweetie. But that then quickly became a a term of abuse. And then it sort of morphed into, when I was younger in politics, that I never smiled. Um, And that was part of what I spoke about earlier on, this feeling that I had to emulate the very serious Mm. men around me. But that kind of way of speaking about a woman, you'd never hear that about a male politician. I mean, you know, you think about somebody like, I don't know, sort of randomly, Gordon Brown, not the mm. smiliest of individuals, but I don't remember <laughs> the sort of, at any point, the overarching narrative about Gordon Brown was that he never smiled. 
Um, so there's there's just something so bossy. Yeah, a man will be, you know, strong and, and strident and assertive. Women will be bossy and difficult. Partly it's about that. It's about this double standard behaviours that in men are valued and, and lauded and women are seen as being very unfeminine and, you know, to be criticised. And then I guess to bring it back to me, I suppose there are lots of men in politics that get frustrated because they they can't beat me democratically in, in elections. So they have to sort of find other ways to to bring me back down to size. Um, but I'm not alone there. Um, I think many women in all sorts of walks of life will experience that. So I don't think it's that men are scared of me or women like me. They're threatened by us because somewhere in the depths of their mind, they, I don't know, maybe don't think women should be in these positions. They probably deny that vehemently, but there will still be some men who hold to that. And secondly, there are men who won't hold to that, but who will nevertheless see somebody like me in the position I'm in and think, that should be me because I'm much better because I, <laughs> and, and, you know, maybe they are, I don't know, but well, go out and get yourself elected and then you can do my job, but don't have a go at me because I've managed to do it instead of you. You've been First Minister eight years now and you're seven. the first... Seven. Seven, is don't, it? Don't make me older than I already am. Just <laughs> over seven, yeah. Yeah, I was going straight from 2014 through. You're the first First Minister, aren't you, to have formed a third government? In the lifetime of the Scottish Parliament, yes. Yes. How have you changed during that time? Oh, in in many, many ways. I mean, I, I don't think I've changed fundamentally as a person. I think how I approach the job I do, you know, how I approach decisions, how I, I sort of navigate life has changed a lot with experience, with, you know, just the, the sort of stresses and strains that come with doing a job like this. I care less about things that I might once have cared a lot about. I think I've come to learn things like, you know, the old saying is very true, to govern is to choose every time you make a decision. Uh, you will please some people and annoy other people. There are no decisions you ever take that keep everybody absolutely happy. And that sounds really obvious, but that's a difficult thing to sort of come to terms with that you will always annoy some people. So I guess I've just changed in my understanding of what leadership's about, of what it entails, the resilience you need to, to do all of that and to tune out some of the things that are not as important you know every single day literally without exception if I chose to which I don't I could read across the media I don't know certainly a handful maybe two handfuls of columns written by not exclusively men but more often than not men telling me how I should be doing my job differently or better Um, mainly by people who probably wouldn't last very long (laughs) if they were doing my job so you know in days gone by that might have sort of uh, affected me more than it does right now and I try not to close my mind to legitimate criticism because I need to be open to that but equally I'm much more able to tune out just the voices of people who think they could always do it better and focus on making the best decisions I can recognizing that you know I will always make mistakes and it's really important to learn from that and you know the the whole COVID experience has accelerated that process for me because the decisions involved there have been unlike anything I've ever faced before you know the impact on people the weight of responsibility of that and the need to just try to reach the best decisions you can and be as comfortable within yourself about them as you can has definitely brought a lot of that into pretty sharp focus. Yeah I mean it's been a an insane 18 months and showing no sign of getting any less insane. Because you're such a big reader and I know that people mm-hmm. turn to your Twitter to see what you've been reading as well, I'm going to ask you a few, ex- sneak in a few extra book questions. I'm going to cheat. So what was the best book that you read last year? 
So last year, I think it would be Shuggy Bean, Douglas Stewart. Have you had a sneaky advance proof of Young Mungo? I haven't yet, actually, no. I think in April it's coming out. I think so, yeah. It's not long now. You might have just answered it. I was going to say, what's the book you're most looking forward to next year? Probably that one. Um, I was actually reading a sort of list in one of the Sunday papers, I think, of books that were being published I'm one of these people that I buy way more books than I ever read. So I've got Mm. towering piles of unread books. So every year I tell myself I'm going to really, you know, sort of slow down on the the acquisition of new books and get through the ones that I've not read. But every year I break that resolution within days. I make that resolution every January that I am going to not buy a book until I've finished the one that I'm reading. It just never happens. I've got this theory that the love of reading and the love of books are obviously very connected, but they are actually quite distinct. I love reading, but I love books. Mm. So I love having books, even if I know I'm never going to get around to reading that one. I just, there's something about the, the physicality of, of books and everything. So my book collecting habit, and it is a habit, is actually quite distinct from my reading habit. They obviously are mutually dependent, but they are distinct habits. What are you reading right now? Uh, I am reading a book called The Matrix oh, by yes. Lauren. Uh, Lauren Groff, uh, which I've just started, uh, so I'm not really very far into it yet. Um, I've just finished uh, Pat Barker's The The Women of Troy, which I I really enjoyed. I loved that. I loved The the Silence of the Girls. I think the book I probably enjoyed most this year, actually. It was recommended to me by Val McDermott, uh, one of my my great pals, so I can say this um, because I loved her book this year as well, uh, 1979. Sarah Hall, Burnt Coat. Oh, yeah. See, I haven't read that yet. Really fantastic. It's pandemic themed, but it's, you can imagine, a more extreme version of what we've been living through. But it's just exquisitely written. That's definitely uh, my favourite book of uh, 2021. Um, Although I loved uh, Great Circle, Maggie Shipstead. It was yeah, long-listed or short-listed for the booker um, as well. Yeah, sorry, I could talk about books forever. Yeah, no, that's great. What's your evergreen book, the one that you most often push on people? Um, oh, there's lots of books. I, I'm not a great re-reader of books. I just think there are so many books out there that I've not read that I, I don't want to take up time rereading. I, I tend to be the kind of person that pushes the, the book that I have read most recently and loved most recently. But in terms of more of a staple, it would be classics. So, you know, Jane Eyre, Rebecca, just one wonderful classic novels that I got so much joy out of reading the first time. So if I was going to, as I do sometimes, give presents of books uh, to people, these are the kind of ones I would go to in addition to the latest book that I'm madly in love with. So would you still take the collected works of Jane Austen on the desert island or have you you changed your mind? So if you ask me that question every day, I would come up with a different answer because it depends on what mood I was in. Uh, it would depend on what I'd just read. So today, no, uh, probably not. I don't know what I would take today. There's so many books, authors that I love, uh, periods, uh, genres that I love, that it, it really kind of depends what mood I'm in at any given time. What's your emotional age? <laughs> this is a dangerous one. Okay, I can see a front page of The Sun. Um, oh, dear. <laughs> the age where I always remember thinking, do you know what? This is a good age was when I turned 30. I really enjoyed turning 30 because it did feel much more adult than anything that had come before. I'm not sure whether that means it's my emotional age, but if I was to choose an age that I had enjoyed, I think, more than any other, 
then probably 30. But I think, you know, we should try and enjoy whatever age we happen to be at at the time because it comes with all the experience that we've managed to accumulate. Yeah, there was somebody on Twitter the other day doing a kind of a would you rather be 25 or 45 poll. And I just remember thinking, actually, can I have 55? Because I don't think I liked either of those very much. No, um, unless I could take back with me all of the experience and all of the the learning and, and all of the consciousness that I have now back to being 25, I don't think I'd want to go back to being 25 because what I felt kind of unsure of myself and who I was, mm. what I was about. And that kind of age, I think, is quite tough, uh, especially perhaps for women. So, no, I'm, I'm with you. I think while I've said what I've said about being 30, I think it's probably better just to be comfortable in the age you're in or at right now. Is there uh, any plans to write a memoir on the cards? Oh, you better believe it. Not on the cards because... See, this is... I, I, Not like you've got time right now. Well, I got asked a question a few weeks ago when I was doing an interview for Vogue magazine. I'll just throw that in. So Get you. Um, <laughs> Fancy. And, and the interviewer asked me, you know, have you thought about what you want to do when you leave politics? And I preface my answer by saying, well, I'm not planning to leave politics anytime soon. But, you know, yeah, I've had some thoughts and writing a memoir would be one of them. And of course, all hell broke loose because the media here took that literally to mean that I must be thinking about standing down and leaving politics, which is just, you know, I don't know what they expect me to be robotic and, you know, sort of not concede that one day uh, I might actually do something else. So, yeah, definitely. I will write... When I do leave office, I will definitely write, um, whether I'll write it all for publication or just for therapy for myself, (laughs) I don't know. But, you know, I've been in frontline politics for, yeah, the best part of 30 years during, you know, some of the most interesting and exciting times of modern Scottish history. You know, the establishment of the Scottish Parliament, the independence referendum, what we're living through right now, and all sorts of other things uh, along the way. So, yeah, I will definitely write all of that. Whether anybody will ever want to read it, I don't know. Oh, I think they will. What's your superpower? I think resilience, the ability to get through and keep going during really tough times. So resilience and and I'm blessed with a really sort of healthy store of energy, which I have needed every last ounce of over the last couple of years. God. Who is your old bird role model? Okay, I was going to say my mum, but she will go ballistic if I, I, <laughs> it's a compliment. Um, Nicola. I know, but if I buy my mother's an old bird, she'll go ballistic. But sorry, mum, but yeah, my mum definitely because she has, you know, she's been my inspiration for my entire life. She has, you know, held me up, encouraged me, made me believe in myself, even you know, well, especially in in the tough times. Added to that, a great friend of mine who sadly died uh, just at the very start of this year, uh, Kay Oric, who uh, was the first person in the SNP I campaigned for back when I was 18, a member of the Scottish Parliament in the first session of Parliament and, you know, is somebody that I learned so much from and was a great friend and, and definitely, you know, she's somebody that I've always taken a lot of inspiration and learned uh, so much from and I, I really miss her that now that she's no longer here. Um, and last one, which it probably is a sun front page waiting to happen. Um, how many fucks do you give? <laughs> um, I understand the temptation to say none, but it, it wouldn't be true. I, I give a lot. I would hate to be the kind of person that didn't care about anything. I can't imagine being that person. And certainly if I ever found myself being that person, I should not do the job I'm doing. So I, I care about a lot. I, I care that, you know, the public generally, even if they don't agree with me or, you know, don't like my politics, they 
believe that I'm doing the best job I can and uh, doing it to the best of my ability. I care less, though, as I was saying earlier on, about the commentariat that, you know, just crawl over every syllable of everything I see and, you know, spend acres of newsprint, you know, telling me how I should be doing my job. I, I just care less about that. I care less about, and I appreciate that seeing this comes with an immense amount of privilege. I care less about the material sort of side of, of life than, than I once did. So yeah, it's not that I don't give any fucks. It's just I give different ones than I used to when I was younger. That's a very good answer. Thank you so much, Nicola. Thank you for fitting me in. No, it's a pleasure. It's been nice to your talk probably to you. horrendous day. <laughs> this was a nice interlude in an otherwise horrendous day. Thank you for listening. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review, and follow, because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like to know more about my own experience of shifting, my book, The Shift, How I Lost and Found Myself After 40, and You Can Too, is out now in paperback. See you next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.